Good morning, everyone. Today, it's our blessed privilege to open the Word of God together to study what God has said and look into the glorious promises and hope and also think about what God's done for us and how we need to believe his promises and trust him in all things. This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, which I've entitled, Build in Light of the Day of the Lord. And I'll read a couple of verses on the next slide, and we will put this in context and lay this out. It's an amazing section of scripture that I believe needs to be understood, especially by all who are leaders and teachers and gospel workers, but ultimately all of us. So I'll first read verses 10 and 11, which we covered last week, and then we'll do 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13, and we'll go from there. Now, starting with verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds on it, for no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Last week, preached on that. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, verses 12 and 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, with that introduction to this and overview of the first couple of verses, we want to remember the key point that we covered last week. Take care how you build. And remember, there's an imperative. Take care how you build. And for those who preach and teach the word of God, nothing should be more important than the study of the word of God, understanding what God said, and making correct applications so that God would have a powerful impact on the lives of those who hear the word of God. The word of God is not merely ideas or philosophies or many things that might be out there to think about. It is the Holy Spirit-inspired word, which God cannot lie. God has spoken. And as we believe and understand it, God will change our lives and those those who listen to him that we preach to. So now we'll go to verse 12 on the next slide. Material for builders. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now the first point I make on the slide here, the analogy is not allegory. I want to explain why I'm saying that. Much of what has been written in church history about various topics and passages shows more allegorical interpretation than an attempt to understand what Paul meant. Paul here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
He's an apostle. Uh, we'll, we'll see his credentials in First uh, Corinthians 15, but I've mentioned this many times. And I don't believe the point is the gold stands for this sort of building or the silver for this sort or this sort or that sort. When we get this understood in the context, there are two main categories. The two main categories are that which is combustible and that which is not combustible. And we'll talk about that a little more. And feel free to bring questions next week to Sunday school. We can answer them. But this is very, very important. This is about those doing the building, how, why, and what with. God, God is using Paul to speak to all who would be gospel workers, teachers, elders, anyone who's responsible for building on the one foundation, Jesus Christ. All the way back to chapter 1, the topic has not really changed. Remember what the problem was. One is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. What? Is Christ divided? And so if the foundation is the correct one, Jesus Christ, the true doctrine of Christ, the preexistent son, the creator, everything the Bible says about Christ, then that's the right foundation. If we have the right gospel, that's what we're building on. Now, in that sense, some have taken it upon themselves to build in a very wrong manner. And we'll see as we go on what, what that's all about. There may be an allusion to Solomon's temple, which is described in 1 Chronicles 21, 1 and 2, but it's not exact. King David said to the assembly, my son Solomon, whom God alone has chosen, is still young and inexperienced. So how was this to be built? Well, there's mention of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood. There's, there's materials. So that's just a rough illusion. It's not an allegory. In this sense, there are those things which would be in keeping with what God has said, what God has done with the person of Christ, with the authority of Scripture, and how God saves, how God sanctifies, and how God works in people's lives. And I have said this for, for a long time. If we know what God said, if we understand the intent of the Holy Spirit-inspired author, and we preach those things and teach those things authoritatively based on what God has done for us, not anything about our own selves, but what he has done, God will use that. How well we do, only God can know. We'll point out that fact again. We'll keep looking at 1 Corinthians 4, 5, which is where this is all headed. I want to cite another the scholar who helped me see this in the late 80s when I desperately needed to understand what 1 Corinthians was about because it had been misused and I needed to know what it meant so I could help people get out of bad versions of Christian teaching that was making them confused and fearful and in bondage. So let me cite Dr. Gordon Fee. He says this, Finally, it is probably not irrelevant 
that gold, silver, and costly stones recur regularly in the Old Testament. I just cited that. Let me skip ahead. Therefore, Paul does not have some fabulous building in view, but the Old Testament description of Solomon's temple, thus anticipating the very important imagery to follow that what is being built, that is the church in Corinth, as, as will be spelled out shortly, is in fact God's own temple there in the midst of other places. Let me stop and explain something important as we go forward. Dr. Fee really helped me when I needed it in the late 80s. And now the commentaries, I have five or six of them, cite Fee because his work was so seminal in understanding this. As we think of the church in Corinth, we describe that as in Acts, as, as I've been teaching through Acts, we just got out of that section. What was in Corinth? What sort of temples were there? What were the pagans up to? They had every magic, um, uh, type of pagan religion, temples to this god, places for that goddess, and so on and so forth. So as we're looking at the bigger context What are we in the middle of? God's field. The church is God's field. The church is God's building. And the next time I preach in this, it'll be the church as God's temple. Here's the thing about the body of Christ. The church is God's temple. You don't have to have a building. You can meet a lot of different places. And in aggregate, those who are the ones who are redeemed and are part of this temple of God, there's a plural you and we get to God's temple there, the gathered church doesn't have to have a magnificent structure to be the temple of God. It's a people. It's a people. Let me continue the quotation from Dr. Fee. The church will be spelled out shortly in verses 16 and 17. I'm repeating what he said. Is the, in fact, God's own temple there in the midst of all other places, temples or otherwise, for the worship of pagan deities. And what they are currently doing is desecrating the only temple of the living God in pagan Corinth. Here's what that is about. If those who are called to be the ones caring for the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ and taking care of the well-being of his people and those people are mistreated by leadership, even if they describe accurately the true foundation, they're building with wood, hay, and stubble. And the pagans always abuse the people that come to their temples. They abuse them with every manner of false teaching and uh, practices that harm people who would be dedicated to various religions and beliefs. The church as the temple is not a building. It's a people. And this people that God has called can meet a lot of different places, including in a building. And I'll give you a little preview so you'll come back maybe in a few weeks when I'm preaching again on this. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 
Do you not know that you, in the Greek is plural, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you, people, plural, are that temple, if you're trusting in Christ. Are you trusting him? Are you being built upon the rock? Let's go now to verse 13a. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Now, this is an analogy to help us. I mentioned a couple times, this is a very important word. On the next, when we get to the next slide, I'll bring it up again. There's this word, each one. And it means an individual. In this case, specifically, those who would say, well, I like this preacher, I like that preacher, I like Peter better than Paul or Apollos or whoever may come to Corinth. That's not good thinking. What we need to know is that the what we're building is what God has given, which is his people who are filled with the Spirit and are his. God is dwelling within people who know him and love him. Evangelists preach Christ. Teachers teach about the word of God. And that's what is building God's temple. And the judgment applies to each builder. And it should and does make us think about that. So the day, by the way, is the eschatological day. That means end times. In this context, the day, the ESV uh, has a capital on day, and that's a good way to see that. The day is the later time when God brings judgment and reveals the quality of the work. That's the thing that I think has been missed throughout church history. Our judgment about the quality of work is not the same as God's. We judge based on structures, money, popularity, all these things. But God does it. Let me cite Camp and Rosner. Why the scholars? Because I want to give a high regard for studying the text and getting it right. Scholars get it wrong. Or they may have a very good reading. But if you can know what it means, that's important. Kiamp and Rosner, the timing of that judgment is mentioned in 4.5. It will happen when the Lord comes. The heaping up of synonyms for the same event of examination leaves the inescapable impression that there will be no doubt about the assessment. I'm going to stop right there, citing the scholars. If Jesus makes a statement, it's the right one. That should be real simple. But I've seen people say, Jesus said this means that, and they have a different idea. 
Well, God cannot lie. The work of Christian leaders will be shown for what it is. This should weigh upon us. There'll be an apocalyptic epiphany of the value of work. And so we might think, well, if I'm going to evangelize or teach or preach the word or be responsible for the well-being of a local gathering of believers, wherever it may be, how can I know that I'm building properly? Well, we know from the word of God. We know from the teachings that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we need to humbly allow the entire congregation to study with us to make sure we understand it and we get it right. Nothing is more powerful than the Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture taught clearly and forthrightly. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, 3, 13b. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So each one is used twice in this verse. Think about the answer to prayer. When we go to the throne of grace and bring our concerns to the Lord, do you believe that Jesus Christ hears the prayers of each one? Do you believe that all you need to do is be part of a group and that's all that matters? That's false. It doesn't mean that we don't need each other, but that God can deal with each one. Now, it says here, the fire will test. I love that word for test. There's, it's used as a verb and as a noun, and it's a dokimadzo, and it means to prove, to put something to the test to see if it's genuine. I've mentioned that before. And how do we know the work is genuine? How do we know what's good? God puts it to the test. The adjective dokimos is used later in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here's the point. Put to the test now what's biblical, what's true, and what's godly, and what's right, and cling to it. And human wisdom is never gold, silver, precious stones. That's clear. Uh, the sophos or sophia, wisdom, wise, it only comes from God. And once we know the truth in the gospel and we can hear the word of God in our hearts, are changed because as God is speaking, why would we want to build with something else? Why would we want to please man? Why would we want a huge, huge following for something that's really not from God? The word here means proved, receivable, tried as metals by fire, and purified. Each one is used. Seven times. Right here. 
in 1 Corinthians in this context. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, and we'll see where this is going. We can't read, wear out this verse while you're turning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5. This could almost be a description of the various hagiographies that have been written in church history. You know what a hagiography is? Rather than writing about someone's life, you write about some glorious saint that's bigger than life. But it isn't appropriate. Only God knows who are the great people of faith. So 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. When is the time? When the Lord comes. In the day. Okay? The Lord knows who is serving and who is building with something less. Who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, disclose the motives of men's hearts, and that each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, this is telling us something that we'll get to here shortly. This doesn't mean you lose your salvation if you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Those who know Christ and trust Christ and believe in him alone are not losing salvation. But the reward was determined by God, and the loss is simply loss of reward, not of salvation. So each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. There's another use of each one. Let's go to verse 14. Eventually, we're going to get to our applications in Philippians. I wouldn't blame you if you had got, turned there earlier than when we get there, because we're going to have a long section where Paul says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 3.14 ESV if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That is a promise. If you build on the foundation, you'll receive a reward. Though this is about Christian servants and leaders and teachers, as we go through 1 Corinthians, it's also applied to individuals, all of us. And so the first thing we need to know Am I building on the foundation? The foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation is the person and work of Christ, not anything else. Judgments made in this age are almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. Now, some have said, well, how can you say such a thing? Look at Hebrews. Look at the great people of faith laid out in Hebrews. Abraham and, and Noah and so on. Well, what's the difference between that and our assessment of our favorite people from church history after the scriptures? The difference is this. Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit says that Abraham believed God, he did. Those of whom the world is not worthy those identified in scripture. We would like to take that same thing and apply it to our favorite preachers, either now or in church history, but we're not the writers of scripture. We might be wrong. We might not know who, whose motives are better than others. 
And so, therefore, if we can do it that way, study Scripture and know what it says, we can know what sort of things God does approve of. And that is believing the promises of God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? Is he indeed God the Son? Is he indeed the eternal creator? Did he indeed come into our world? Did he indeed reveal himself to be the one that is spoken of by the scriptures in the Old Testament? Is he the sinless savior? Is he the one who died for sins once for all? Oh, the songs we sing, I had to restrain myself. I would love to sing, but then the voice would be gone too quickly. Um, But how is it we're on any foundation that's going to stand? Because of the blood of Jesus that was shed once for all, that we could be part of his people. And so that's how we know. We might think someone was really great in church history. They probably were, but we don't know until the Lord comes and determines. Maybe the ones that built with gold, silver, precious stones are people that we never heard of. We don't know. Wait until the Lord comes. The work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. He'll receive a reward. I've mentioned this word, may know. It means to stay put or be firmly grounded. Abide is a term that John uses a lot in First John and also in the gospel. And it means to stay put. If we stay firmly grounded on the one foundation, Jesus Christ, we will most certainly be rewarded. Foundation here is not in the Greek, but it is implied when he builds on. Those who may hear this, who are evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, whoever is serving in any capacity, by implication all Christians, but here specifically thinking of the, their favorite preachers, um, how would you know you're building on the foundation? Only by looking at what God has said and trusting him and believing him and being grounded on Christ. Eric will get in Matthew to the building on the rock. Jesus said, the one who hears my words and does them are the one who build, is the one who builds on the rock. The terms are singular, each one, each one, each one. One of the lies of postmodernity is that there's this amorphous group that's somehow evolving into godhood through moral and spiritual evolution. That's a lie. Do not believe that. If you think that the Christ consciousness is what it means to build on the rock, you are not building on any foundation. You're just believing the lie of Satan. You shall be like God. That's a lie. That is the lie. So therefore, Christian workers are preaching Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and who he is and what he did and why we need him. Again, build on the foundation. Here's the statement that I have in my notes. Faithful service in building on the one foundation, Jesus Christ will remain and be seen for what it is and rewarded in that day. 
anyone should think, how can I know now? Because we know who he is, and we need him to embolden us to preach Christ. Wouldn't it be uh, awful if someone came and said to the teachers and pastors, please preach the word of God to us. Preach Christ. We want to hear about Jesus. We want to hear about forgiveness of sins. We want to hear the truth. Tell us what God said. Um, That's not in keeping with our vision. This literally happens. I've had people call me and say, that's literally what happened. No, we don't have, that's not our vision. So you can't do that here. Here's something you need to know. That is not building on the rock. And even if that leader who says that's not part of our vision, teaching the word of God, preaching Christ, there's possibility that's not the rock at all. Maybe it's just a social club. So if anyone asks you to preach Christ, we should be ready to give a reason for the hopes that's within us. And that is only in Christ, not in ourselves. Again, Fee comments on this, uh, on verse 14. Thus, as surely as there is a final judgment, there's also reward and loss. What is not known, either from this passage or elsewhere, is the nature of the reward. This text only affirms its certainty, unquote. Why? Why do we not know how great the reward is going to be. Because if we thought we could uh, determine what we want, we'd get it all wrong anyhow. If we don't trust the promises of God and what God is doing and what Christ has said and what he's done for us, that whatever reward is not burned up is from him will be the right thing, then we got a problem. Do you think that Jesus Christ can get it right? Some evidently don't think so. I believe he will. Verse 15. 1 Corinthians three fifteen. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, just to point out why you can't allow the traditions found in what we call church history to interpret the Bible for us, is that this passage is used to teach purgatory. But there's no way it's teaching that. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him alone and confess him, their sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven because of what Christ did for us. We, we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And the idea that somehow baptism saves you and then you lose it and you lose it again and then try to get some more back and then you lose it again and you do this, you do that, more works, less works, and then in the end, you probably still don't have it. Now you got to go somewhere else and get paid to get out. This is all absurdity. The church is not like that. The foundation is not like that. The building is not like that. The temple is not like that. 
what this is is simple people believing the gospel in pagan Corinth and gathering together wherever they gather and trusting Christ alone. And in that context, to be part of this and to be part of the family of God is what we need. I don't know who's the better preacher. I don't know who's going to get a greater reward, but we can know that God has put the members in the body as he sees fit, and we need to care for them, and we need to make sure that the word of God is taught clearly. The term for suffering loss doesn't mean punishment. It means to be deprived of something. It's very, very clear in the Greek, deprived of something, but still there with Christ in eternity. This is about individual workers who build on the foundation of Christ. Interestingly, when I first read this and trying to understand it in the late 80s, uh, and as I said, Dr. Fee helped so much, now I have so many commentaries based on the Greek, and hardly anyone differs on what's being said here. It's just clear. And a lot of really bad ideas go away when the Bible becomes clear to us. I, I want to again do an extended quote of Fee. The others often cite him, although with some differences on some points. He says, this text has singular relevance to the contemporary church. It is neither a challenge to the individual believer to build his or her life well on the foundation of Christ, nor is it grist for theological debate. By the way, he'll say later, we will get to the individual believer right here. So I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, and so on. Back to the quotation. Rather, it is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament that warn and encourage those responsible for building the Church of Christ. In the final analysis, of course, this includes all believers, but it has particular relevance following so closely as it does the preceding paragraph to those teaching and leadership responsibility. It's a warning. I, honestly, the thing that makes this so difficult, we'll see this in Philippians, is that when you're in the midst of what seems like a career, which is in fact a calling, and whatever we may be doing is being compared unfavorably to others, and the criteria keeps shifting, and some will say, well, how's your church doing? Well, what's your church like? What's yours like? And what sort of counseling program do you have? What sort of, uh, uh, do you, are, are, you, are you enlightened about pronouns? And I remember in seminary, some of these things would come up. And so it was so hard to get the pronouns right. But for those who love Jesus Christ, they want to know him. And the pronouns aren't as important as knowing Christ and the forgiveness of sins. What sort of programs do you have? How is it like this? How is it like that? Those things aren't the point. Are we building on the only one foundation, Christ?
Paul's points as he is unquestionably warning. It's unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. This is what Fee said when I read this in in the late 80s. Wow. Wow. That's what we thought we were supposed to try to do. But is it right? When I got to seminary, some were teaching these very things. Continuing, but at the final judgment, all such building and perhaps countless other forms where systems have become more important than the gospel itself will be shown for what it is. It says, be something merely human with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. And I agree wholeheartedly, unquote. Um, I will repeat this claim, and it needs to be tested. I believe that based on what Paul has written in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 through 4, 5 at least, what we consider Christendom, Christian countries, Christian groups, Christian West, Christian whatever, the, the Vatican from every other form of wars fought over Christianity, Christendom is a mission field. And in fact, what people will find out is if they are allowed to preach in a large Christian gathering in some place called church, there may be a few people there who will respond to the gospel, and when they do, they're so hungry they don't want anything else. And if the large Christendom becomes sufficient in its own right, you will find pastors and elders and leaders saying to people, stay away from those gospel preachers. That's not our tradition. Why would that happen? The God's elect are scattered all over the world. We don't know who they are, but if we preach Christ, they'll respond. This doesn't mean every gathering is wrong, every organization is bad, and it's not a sin to be organized, but we need to remember what the foundation is. So suffer loss is a good translation. Now, how do we know? Well, we just need to trust Christ and serve him and ask him to discipline us and and help us to change so that we're building on the rock. What did Jesus say to Peter? Remember the three times, do you love me? He said, tend my flock, feed my sheep. If we're going to feed sheep, what would be good food for sheep? of the spiritual type, pure teaching of the word of God. That's what causes us to grow. Another couple scholars say this, Camp and Rosner, the verb to suffer loss does not mean to punish, but to be deprived of something. 
The issue is not reward or punishment, heaven or hell, but reward or no reward. It's the builder's work that will be able to be burned up, not the builder itself. So this isn't to say that if someone is a preacher, teacher, evangelist, elder, church worker, minister of any sort, and knows Christ and trusts Christ and believes in Christ and has that doctrine down, that person's salvation is never in jeopardy. But we don't know exactly what will happen when it's time for some of the reward to be burned up. This is not taking away anyone's assurance. Paul already said in 1 Corinthians 1.8, we'll also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. And so I'm not in any way thinking I know whose work is the best compared to somebody else's. I don't know that. I know that only God can be the judge. Why? How can God be the judge? Because he has to be. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows our motivations. He knows the things that would cause us to stumble. He knows the things that we can maybe hide from others. And as I said not long ago, that's rather awesome to think about. But there's no intent to take away anyone's assurance of salvation. If you're trusting Christ, there's no purgatory. There's God keeping us blameless until the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, we have a few minutes left. Our apps, applications, and implications are all from Philippians. So if you can start turning to Philippians 1.12, and we'll have some other verses we'll cover to show that this is a consistent teaching that Paul gave. Those who serve Christ in ministry must avoid seeking religious approval now. If Christ is preached forthrightly and accurately, God will be glorified. By the way, thank you for evangelists that give reports that are detailed about ones that you talked to and prayed for and things that are happening. Um, What a wonderful blessing that people go out and share about Christ. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1.12. Turn there in your Bible. You only have to turn once because we'll go right on through and make a few comments as we apply this teaching. 1 Corinthians 1, I'll start reading verse 12. On the slide, we get to verse 15 here. So here's what it says. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that in verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard to everyone else. Remember, as we're studying Acts, Jesus himself, in Acts 23, 11, stood at Paul's side and said, you must also witness in Rome. And so it may be very demeaning to be an apostle in chains, but it turned out for the progress of the gospel. Verse 14, that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more 
courage to speak the word without fear. Praise God that the Holy Spirit gives us courage and and boldness to speak the word. The truth of the gospel will never be the primary philosophy of the world ever. The world is opposed to the things of God, but we nevertheless need to please Christ, not the world. The world lies in the power of the evil one in its hostility against God. So how could the progress of the gospel happen when an apostle of Christ is in prison? Oh, so you're the great apostle, huh? Interesting. How could that be? Because the progress of the gospel is the gospel going where it was not before, not the progressive gospel. Let me explain the difference. The progress of the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ to people. Some will be saved. Some will be interested and maybe later be saved. Others will just become hardened. Either way, God is glorified because the gospel is preached. The progressive gospel says now the gospel's changed and we can't expect people to listen to that sort of thing. That's not how it works. We did a survey of the consumers, of the religious consumers in our area, and we found out that they don't want to hear about salvation, heaven and hell, Jesus Christ, blood atonement. No, they want to know something else, how to become one with nature or whatever it is. So the progress of the gospel is where it goes, not how it changes because it doesn't change. So we want to build on the rock. Now to what we have on the slide, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. One of those words is used earlier in 1 Corinthians as well. Uh, The word, uh, one of those words I, I just cite here. But some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So strife had earlier been warned against. There weren't Corinthians, goodwill, eudokia, you meaning good. We use the word euphemism, uh, making it sound good. But here eudokia means uh, that it's a good thing. It's uh, goodwill, good intention. Selfish ambition is, a bi- is bad. It's in the sense of, well, I can do better than Paul. Look at him. He's in prison. Even if that were the case, Paul says, I rejoice that Christ is preached. And that is true. If someone is interviewed on TV, and I've seen several recently, who share the truth about what Christianity is about. Several really interesting people lately have done that. And with unabashed boldness say, this is a, the Christianity is about the blood atonement. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about the person of Christ. It's about hope and so on. And 
When we hear that, don't you rejoice when you hear somebody confess Christ? When you hear somebody tell about who he is and what he did, why we need him, what his promises are, no matter how bad things may get, God is still there with those who are his witnesses. Let's continue to the last slide. As we continue here in Philippians. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. That attitude must guide us throughout this life. Everyone who is serving, and every individual, we're all witnesses, but here he's specifically dealing with the leadership. Everyone needs to be very clear about this. If we don't rejoice when Christ is preached because the one doing it is younger or more articulate or more successful or more worldwide, then there's something wrong. We have to rejoice no matter what if Christ is preached. But if someone says, no, don't preach Christ, I can't rejoice in that. Can you? No, no, no. Why are you telling me to preach Christ? Why would anybody question that? Some do. The approval of our peers, this statement really cuts to the heart of what the problem is. And I made the statement so you can judge it. I know it's true over the decades for me. And it's not a good thing. And I want it to be gone. The approval of our peers in a Christian group can easily lead us astray. Now, if you read Luke X as a two-volume work, when does the danger sign show up? When they start arguing who's the greatest. Remember, we were looking in Sunday school in Luke chapter 9. After Moses, Elijah, the mount, they come down. The demon doesn't want to go out. What's wrong with your disciples? And when it finally gets on in the narrative, they're arguing who's the greatest. The one thing that we know will always taint whatever we might do is pride. And Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said that whatever bad stuff happened to him through this messenger of Satan, he knew from the Lord that was to keep him from being exalted. And so we're in a group, whatever it might be, and our peers in this group have certain things that they think are the most important. And if we end up appearing to be the best in that way of looking at things, and they're saying, this is it, that will easily lead us astray, all of us, all of us. Because that peer group that tells us we're great or that we're terrible or whatever they're claiming, usually the pride is the thing that's the biggest danger, they're not going to be there on that day when the Lord comes and judges. We can't say to the Lord, no, wait a second, I can't lose any reward because everybody said I was a great preacher. 
Do you think God will be impressed with that? Or maybe others are more timid and they think, well, I wonder how God could use me. Only God knows. But we do know the terms. We know who Christ is. We know the gospel. We know what he said. We can study the word of God. We can learn these things. And if it's possible that we can know what God said with clarity, why would we do something less? Why would we, why would we be satisfied with human wisdom, pagan religion, nature worship, the accolades of man, money, fame, power, all of the enticements, the great religious edifices out there that we could never build. And the peers are saying, our vision doesn't allow you to tell people about Christ. But trust me, this is from God. I would run. I would literally run. The way to build with quality materials is to accurately teach the Bible, preach Christ, and avoid grandiose claims. They were arguing who's the greatest. Not a good idea. Why? Even if someone is doing a better job, we don't know. God comes and decides. But we can preach Christ and trust him. We are to honor God and glorify him. Today, if you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's my honor to share with you who he is, what he did, why we need him, and what he expects of us. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who came into our world, who did many miracles, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and the miracles proved who he is. He's the only one who did these things. He's the only one who could ever die for sins once for all. Why? Because everyone else is a sinner. He's the sinless one. His blood is the spotless blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection and was raised before many witnesses. He bodily ascended into heaven before witnesses. He appeared to witnesses. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and ever lives to make intercession for us. We can turn to him and cry out to him. And he is the one who's provided forgiveness. Today, repent and believe the gospel. Trust in him. Believe in him. And some may say, well, I have, but my life just doesn't get straightened out. Keep trusting him. Don't run away. Trust him and ask him to forgive and to cleanse. Repent and trust in him alone. Those who do have the gift of eternal life and are forgiven. And I thank God that even today that can happen as we will be commemorating Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray at the end of the sermon here, and then we'll talk about the words of institution. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us and humble us and encourage us to build on the rock. Help us to lay aside what we might think and trust in you alone. I thank you that you promise to preserve all those who know you blameless in the day of the Lord. 
And if there are any here who first now have turned to you, may they be born of you as, and know that they are and trust you and be part of the family of God. And may your gospel go out throughout the world as we prepare for that day. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.